Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Gabbing Gauchos, your source of triathlon news, gossip, and advice. Today we are joined by a professional triathlete, the big Wisconsin cheese himself, Sean Harrington. Hey guys. You can follow Sean on Instagram at BigShawneeHarry. And of course, we're also joined by professional triathlon coach, collegiate coach at UCSB, and one of the top amateurs in the country himself, Matt Eisen. Ahoy hoy. You can follow him on Instagram at Coach Matt Triathlon Engineer. And finally, we have an extra special guest today, ex-professional triathlete, Chris Glibert. Hi. <laughs> now, <laughs> that was illuminating, Chris. <laughs> so we've got two main topics to talk about today. The first is our regular segment called Keeping Up with the Pros, where we'll talk about what's going on in the professional triathlon community. And then we'll go into some common mistakes that athletes make when trying to become a professional. So now, Matt, what's going on with the pros? So have there been any races le- recently where there have been any big names racing? Um, less so than in years past. A couple of big races, Cozumel and Arizona were today. And normally they draw pretty big fields to try and get back to Kona, um, go ahead and get their points. But I think as we alluded to on the last podcast, the change in how pros are going to qualify kind of changed the people who showed up at that race. I mean, I think it wasn't over last I checked, but Aneko was going to win it going like 20 minutes slower than years past what the winner would have gone. And I don't know if guys just scared each other out of going out there. Or, um, but anyway, just not a lot of big names showing up to race. Um, former doper extraordinaire Michael Weiss won uh, Cozumel. And like I said, Aneko was about to win um, Arizona. Of note, Angela Nath, she was a pretty big deal a few years ago, got second at Cozumel. And then the women's race looked like it was going to be Heather, Heather Jackson winning in Arizona. So is this because we've had Kona not that long ago, maybe people are still recovering, or are they still trying to figure out where they're going to race next? Um, I mean, normally the guys that and gals who don't do their best at Kona will show up to one of those two to try and get a lot of points to go back. Um, Sebastian Keenley comes to mind. Like, he didn't do great in Kona. He needs a lot of points to get back. Uh, he would normally go do one of these races. But now that it's a, basically an automatic qualifier, you have to win or be second at these bigger Ironmans to get a slot. Um, the recovery aspect might come into play. They don't want to show up a little underdone because third doesn't really get them anything or fourth doesn't really get them anything like it did in years past in terms of points. Um, so that could be, but we just don't know. And then uh, Miranda Carfrey and Tim O'Donnell went and did a challenge race because they had a big-ass prize purse um, and instead of going to do a, a late-season Ironman like they normally do. Was that this weekend as well? Yeah. How did they do? Uh, Marinda was second. I don't. I haven't looked at. I just saw her gram pop up. Wow. So there must have been a sleeper or something. Uh, no. There's a super like. I mean, in seventy point threes, there's a lot of crossover from the ITU girls. Um. So Rodka. I don't even want to try and pronounce her last name, but she was very good at ITU and is a pretty good half Ironman female. She beat Marinda, which is not that, not that big of a surprise to me. So when do you think we'll start seeing some of the big names show up again? Um, probably in the spring at races where they have deeper slots. So, for example, like Ironman Texas, where a guy like Keenley can go, and I think they're giving five or six, top five or six, get an automatic qualifier to Kona. So he can have an off day and still get a slot 
instead of going to, you know, uh, I can't think of Ironman, Arizona, where there might be one slot and some guy shows up and has the best race of his life and beats him. And then Sebi put in eight hours and five minutes of work to get nothing, including like the prize money is not great at these either. So what, like $6,000 to go get second at an Ironman. So it's not really worth it for them. I mean, that barely covers the travel. And then you'd still have to go do it again somewhere Yeah, else. you have to go do it again. Um, so that's interesting. I think I was telling the guys what really excites me, because I'm a sports fan all around, is that triathlon's turning into a bit of a soap opera, like quote-unquote real sports are, where we're as interested in what they're doing in their off-season as in the races. Um, and maybe many of you have heard of this guy. Lionel Sanders has lit the tri-world on fire the last five years because he's viewed as kind of the quintessential age grouper um even though he's a professional he's a professional who came from his first few races were age group races so in that sense yes he's an age grouper but i think he did he did one iron man branded race as an age grouper in his life isn't that um, ultimately most pros though they uh maybe i guess coming from itu or back in the day that was i mean ben hoffman he was an age grouper at one point and he's insanely good he's been top five at kona a few times but lionel just more so than him actually racing an age grouper he is we can all see his flaws on the surface i think and that's what makes people identify with him is that he wears his his he says everything he thinks he, his heart is on his sleeve, and he has a lot of he has a lot of flaws that people can just see right off the bat, and I think that attracts people to his racing style. We have a pretty big fan sitting next to me, actually. What do you think? I don't know if I'm a, a big fan, but I can appreciate what he does from from what I know. I don't know a lot about him, but yeah, he 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 does he races how he feels, he trains how he feels. Um, I appreciate it. He seems like he like weight trains. Um, he's not one of those like really skinny, even though triathletes aren't necessarily yeah, like that. Right. Okay, well, he, he's, pretty, <laughs> he's, he's pretty he's pretty muscular. He seems well rounded, um, even though his run form isn't great. I mean, he just kind of he kind of guts it through. He doesn't. He's not just like doesn't look like one of those super talented triathletes, but he seems to muscle his way through the race. I feel like that's how I like to think I raced, but uh, that's why I kind of appreciate him. Yeah, Chris hits on a really good point. So, and I see this all the time in coaching, is athletes identify with the athlete that wears it on their sleeve. So the athlete that looks like he's trying the hardest is definitely trying the hardest. The athlete that posts the highest watts on Strava or does the most volume on Strava is definitely working the hardest. So what did, how did Lionel perform at Ironman? Um, at, uh, sorry, Kona specifically. This year, just not well at all. Um, long story short is there's the there's the marketing side to Lionel and the image side, which all athletes have. You know, Lance famously had that where we had no idea what was going on in reality. There's the image side to Lionel, and that's self-made man, um, not that talented, hardest worker. And then there's the reality side where he had one of the foremost world-class coaches just happened to live in his town, took him under his wing when Lionel was in 10th or 11th grade, has been training, trained under that coach for five or six years before switching to another really high-level coach, um, a guy down in Texas, and 
peaked, kind of Lionel essentially peaked last year at Kona getting second. And then um, this past year went kind of off the radar, self-coached, um, really marketed himself super heavily this year, uh, but did plan all his workouts and become self-coached. And because he wears everything on his sleeve, we got to see all of his decision-making. Um, pretty much every week he made a video about his decision-making. And it culminated with a pretty terrible, I mean, in his words too, like a very poor Kona performance. So do you think it was a mistake for him to try to self-coach? I think, um, well, yes, for him. I don't think everyone needs a coach for sure. But he, he, without a doubt, like you look up the results, without a doubt has tailed off tremendously in a year. And I encourage anybody. So there's this guy, Talbot Cox. He's on Instagram. He makes all the YouTube videos for the pros. Go watch some of that content. He's got a channel on Lionel. And you get to literally watch him go from he's riding a medium frame and then he gets beat by Jan Ferdino in a race and he decides he needs to ride a small frame to be more aero. So he rides a small frame for the next two months. Then he makes a video about how that was a mistake, goes back to a medium frame, has a poor race on the medium frame, makes a video about how, no, that was a mistake. I'm going back to the small frame, goes back to the small frame, winds up on a medium frame for Kona. Um, that type of decision-making he sees Jan Ferdino using speed play pedals. I'm going to buy speed play pedals because that's what all the fast guys are riding. Um, and you can literally watch the self-destruction, which, and th this is part of his image, his story, is that for a period of time in college, he did some heavy drugs. Uh, he's a little vague on what type of drugs. I've heard him say weed and alcohol, but again, the image to reality is kind of blurred as to how hardcore it was, but Again, long story short, uh, he has a super addictive personality, and you kind of see that play out with the training too. So, so what do you suggest for an athlete like that beyond maybe having a coach to give them some guidance? Yeah, I mean, I think you just got to know yourself and know know what you need because he clearly doesn't need to be pushed. What I would I would also say, like any coach's dream is someone who doesn't need to be pushed. I'd a hundred percent rather coach somebody who you have to hold back than you have to get out of bed in the morning. I mean So what was your coaching experience growing up? Mine? None. Um, so you were always self coached? Uh so I'll get if you can't tell, I really don't like Lionel Sanders. <laughs> Just and this comes I've try I try to put my personal bias aside. So um our the way we grew up could not be more different in one respect. He's upper middle class, had access to world-class facilities, huge engine, elite national running product talent, like elite talent at an early age, had coaches constantly pursue him, beg him to apply himself to sports. Eventually he caved, got coached, became a world-class athlete. The image he wants to portray is self-made man. Um, I grew up single mom, no facilities, no coaches, uh, literally every aspect of sports I wanted to do. If it was tennis or soccer or running, it was go to the library, buy a book, read how to do it, and then go do it. Um, we didn't have a cross-country program in my school until I made one my junior year. So I see somebody like Lionel, and this is, again, personal bias. I see somebody like Lionel, all the gifts in the world. Like, his parents would have done anything for him, had access to everything in the world, saying, fuck it, I want to do it my way. And if doing it my way means I'm a worse athlete, great, whatever. Um, when 
again, in my town or I spent some time on a Navajo Indian reservation, their kids just loaded with talent that have no chance to get out of there because we they don't have the same opportunities that this guy has been given repeatedly. But there's definitely something to be said for being able to exert control because if you grow up with everything, then you might feel like everything is handed to you and yeah. you haven't really earned it. No, I agree. And I think there you just got to know yourself. Like I said, I'm, I recognize there's a bias for me when I'm either racing an athlete or working with an athlete who um, had a parent who would drive them to swim practice 20 minutes away when that just was, I walked to the tennis court after school. I walked the two to three miles to the tennis court after school to play tennis. Um, seeing that and then seeing somebody just kind of throw it away to do their own thing. Um, so I have trouble separating that personally. Like I know that. But, but don't you think sometimes an athlete has to be willing to take a risk to, you know, achieve maybe their goals and stuff that you can't necessarily always go the traditional route. And maybe Lionel sees it as taking a risk, you know, to try to do his own thing that, you know, he feels he knows himself better. Oh, fully agreed. I think I don't fault. So again, this is a one year, um, he went off on his own and, but now he has the chance to write the ship. And the interesting thing is going to be if he actually, if he hasn't burned so many bridges, because it's going to be hard for him now to find a program I think that'll take him in because he's got, you know, if I coached 20 people and I'm an elite coach and Lionel wants to move in with the group, I'm saying no, because this guy could ruin one bad apple spoils the bunch. And he could, he could blow up everything you've got going for these 20 athletes. So Sean, um, what was your background like? Did you always have a running coach, even from the time you were little or did it start only in high school or only in college or how does that work for you? Um, so an actual formal coach, it, it didn't really start till I guess middle school. Um, but my dad did do a lot of, you know, coaching of me growing up. Um, it was pretty informal. Um, just basically just running routes and maybe trying to write some intervals and stuff. Uh, but yeah, by the time I was in high school, I had a, a, a great coach. Um, I'm, when I look back on, you know, what I had growing up, I was very fortunate. Um, I really had a, a good high school coach, um, for, both cross country and track it was at um same coaches there's two of them um, john minor was the one i worked with a lot on that and then um in college uh, i had another really good coach um, don fritch uh, really enjoyed and then by the time i got to ucsb and triathlon um, i've been very fortunate in my coaching here too um, both starting with mateo and now matt um been had great people to work with so what was the what was your relationship like with your uh, college run coach um, it was really good. Uh, he definitely pushed us a lot. I mean, I think you know, if there was any criticism of him, uh, it was that he would definitely demand a lot of his athletes and, you know, he would, he would recruit a lot of really good people. And then maybe the kind of the, the saying is, you know, throw enough eggs against the wall and some of them won't crack. And, you know, he, he kind of took that approach. I was definitely of the opinion. I knew how to take care of myself and make sure, you know, I, I wasn't going to crack and stuff like that. So I, I was, that's part of what I was looking for when I picked a program was somewhere that was going to push me. I had, you know, 18 teammates when I came in that were better than me, which was, you know, not the case in high school. So, um, it was good to actually have, you know, a coach and a team that would push, push my boundaries. And I think I've grown a lot as an athlete because of that. 
So how do you know um, where to draw the line between allowing a coach to push you maybe to a point that you didn't think you could do and feeling like maybe I'm about to get injured? I mean, I think that's a communication with your coach. Um, I don't think any good coach uh, will ignore the the signs. If, if you if you have reason to think that you might be getting injured and you have a dialogue with your coach, then you should be able to you know tackle those things. Um, I think at the same time, injuries are a part of sport, so you can't you can't avoid them altogether. If you're never getting injured, there's a good chance you're not pushing yourself. And if you're always injured, then obviously you're doing something else wrong. It doesn't even necessarily mean you're pushing yourself too hard. You might just be not taking care of yourself. So I guess like all relationships, communication is super key. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd like to add on that. Um, when I went pro in triathlon and committed to a group, um, <clears throat> one of the things my coach did not do that I wish they had do they did is see my level of commitment to the group and understand I was going to ruin myself. Like if he asked me to do anything, I was going to do it. Um, and now as a coach, you know, Sean brings up the communication there's an onus on the coach to recognize the athlete and repeatedly remind them if they're one of those people, you know, you need to talk to me and explain to them why they need to be open about these. Um, <clears throat> uh, some of the athletes on the team, I'll just name Sarah, like she's a wonderful, hardworking student and it doesn't take, it takes one conversation with her her freshman year to realize she will work herself too hard if I push her. So you have to be on top of letting that athlete know your best performance doesn't come from you being injured. So there's communication on both ends. It's not, you know, if you have a coach who you don't feel like you can talk to, some of that's on the coach and mm -hmm. some of it's on the athlete for not speaking up, but it's always a two-way, it's always a two-way road. Yeah. And I think that's something I've really valued <clears throat> is getting to know my coach um, and, and, and having a very personal relationship with them. I think then you're more likely to talk about, you know, your doubts, you know, things that maybe you would keep to yourself if you didn't know them well. Um, and these are the things your coach needs to be aware of um, so that they can kind of guide your training accordingly. So, Chris, you've been an athlete for most of your life. What was your background like and what was your coaching as you grew up? So growing up, it sounds pretty similar to Sean, just the typical middle school cross country, high school cross country but I think where my difference is, and maybe this is why, Matt, I'm probably not a, a good athlete to be coached. In high school, my coach, uh, you know, was just the gym teacher that was going to coach cross country. Um, and I read a lot of running books, but I'm also kind of a, a control freak, I guess, maybe. So, I mean, he would ask me, like, what workout should we do? Which probably isn't the best thing to ask your high school athlete anyway. <laughs> so I would kind of come up with the workouts and not like they were hard. It'd be five times 800 meters. You know, they they were probably more too intense and we didn't do enough mileage. Um, but I would essentially write the workouts, but then getting, getting older, I think I just kind of wanted to be in control of my own, um, program. So not like I couldn't have had a coach in triathlon, but I was more comfortable writing my own stuff because I guess I just didn't put the trust that someone else would maybe know better, but the faults in that is that I would continue just to do the same workouts that I enjoyed. Um, I wouldn't necessarily probably do super hard swim workouts. Um, whenever I would go on a bike ride, it wouldn't do, I wouldn't do intervals cause that wasn't any fun. Um, just kind of a lot of long, slow distance. Um, but I was able to push myself just not with much intensity. So Matt, would you, uh, would you, do you have athletes like that sometimes? 
Um, yeah, I think the number one mistake athletes make is doing too much stuff in the middle and doing what's comfortable. And to bring it back on Lionel in a lot of the behind the scenes documentary videos, he is openly saying, I don't make my plan until I wake up in the morning, which can be really good for injury prevention and for making sure you're not overtraining. But it can also be really bad for that because you're tired. Like at some point, Sean, I know this, um, if you're training a lot, you get tired and you make poor decisions. So two days into a three-day block, you might make a decision that's not the best decision just because you're exhausted and cranky, even though you, know, you, you should probably stick to what you wrote before. But there has to be flexibility there. And to Chris's point, he knows he's a control freak. So like, you just have to know the give and the take in yourself and what you need and what you're going to get the most out of. But I mean, I would say even for our listeners here that maybe not be aware, um, Chris and I went to the same undergrad. And so we worked under the same uh, cross country coach. And I mean, Fritch would write us our workouts. And, uh, you know, from what I remember with you, you know, at least your first season, you were very good about very disciplined about doing what was written and responded really well. I mean, of the incoming freshman class, you were the definitely the the strongest, you know, top freshman finisher. And, you know, you went on to struggle with some injuries later. And I think because of that, you ended up doing a little bit more of your own thing. I don't know how, what are your thoughts looking back on college? No, college was the one time where I think I did really follow the workouts because I, because I did have the trust in, in someone. And I think what Matt's alluding to, it takes a lot of mental pressure off. I mean, it does take some mental energy. I was in the Lionel Sanders camp and this is probably one reason I'm a fan of him. It's like when people look like their dog, right? You yeah. like you're a fan of the person who you 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 see and you see yourself in them, I guess. Um, because I would totally just wake up in the morning and be like, "Am I gonna bike today? Am I gonna run today? What's on my schedule? You know, is the pool open? You know that that was my my workout schedule. So yeah, that's what I did. But if I yeah, it does, you have to put a lot of trust in someone to follow their workout. So in college, I feel like I was able to do that. Um, but then after college, like I said, I was like, eh, I feel like I know myself best. I'm going to do my own things. I think it it helps you. I think it helped me maintain a little bit of a better triathlon life balance because I would just work around my schedule. If I had uh, exams one week, then I'd be like, okay, I'm only going to work out mm-hmm. five hours this week. And if I had an entire week off, you know, I was putting in 20 hours, um, just going on some long bike rides and stuff like that. So I was able to work it around my life a little bit better. But does it make you the best triathlete? Absolutely not. And like I said, you don't do the hard things. You just continue to do what you're good at. No, agreed. And full disclosure, since I started coaching at UCSB, I've been self-coached for the life balance aspect. Um, I live with my girlfriend. I want to work out with the kids. And I'm fully aware I probably could have gone like 10, 15 minutes faster at Kona if I had just committed to like a high-level coach over the last two years. But I'm happier, like today, just doing what I know the kids need to be doing. And, okay, I get a little bit of a workout, maybe not the perfect workout, but I'm a lot happier that day. And the result issue at the end of the year is not that big of a deal to me. Well, And, and there are a lot of very successful self-coached athletes, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not maybe not common, but there's enough that exist. I mean, I can't think of any offhand. I mean, maybe you know a few... Um, I mean, there are traditionally men in the pro field that are on again, off again, self-coached. Uh, it's always a bit hairy to figure out. Like, you don't know 
what to believe, right? Until you're friends with them or friends with someone who's friends with them that actually knows what's going on. Um, but it's it's fairly common for men, especially, to take more control of their program, and that's fine. Like he would, like Glibert was saying, um, if he had you know a really high level elite triathlon coach, I'm sure they would have planned around all of his life stuff too. But he would have been spending 100% of his income on that coach to go a little faster at Kona. I feel like I see, I hear most coaches, Matt, you're a coach saying you don't have a coach. Yeah. I feel like I, I hear most coaches saying you need a coach. Do you feel like it's hypocritical? To, to... I feel like, I, I, I feel like my biggest downfall as a coach is my lack of sales ability. So I definitely don't think everyone should have a coach. Um, a hundred percent. So I could like, um, Elka, my girlfriend, I write her workouts and she just needs structure or nothing's going to happen. Like she, it's harder on her not to have something pop up on training peaks. Cause I've gone through this with her. I've been like, what do you feel like doing today? And it doesn't, that is more stressful on her than just telling her what to do. Whereas I'm sure for Chris myself, like I've had, I was full coached for several years when I was racing in the pro field and it, it was it was very stressful on me to do that. I was faster for sure, but my life balance wasn't there. So you just have to know who you are and have that open conversation. And no, I don't think everyone at all should have a coach. I think coaching is results-based and it may make things more fun or it may not. And you just have to like decide what's important to you. Well, I haven't had a coach for a couple of years now. And I got to tell you, Self-coaching is hard for me because I get creatively exhausted. And what I mean by that is, sure, I can make up an, an uh, interval workout on the track, for instance. But once I've done two or three of those, they all feel about the same. It's like I haven't really figured out how to always keep it feeling fresh. You know, it's that's the really valuable part for me on having someone else coach me is that I don't feel like I'm just recycling the same workout over and over and over again. No, agreed. Um, keeping th- Ultimately, triathlon should add to your life. And this is what I tell people when I'm talking to them about coaching. You know, it needs to be a positive in your life. Sure, for the last two months before Kona, I was pretty fucking stressed out. And But in the whole, it was a really positive experience not just because the race went well but because i really do enjoy the struggle of the training and the struggle of the race but it was positive if if it's being a drain on your life then you need to make a change if that means getting a coach great if that means not having a coach at all great if that means switching coaches great if that means switching sports then you should probably find a different sport if you just really aren't enjoying what you're doing so i've got a question for uh sean or uh dr sean so sean i've asked you this before you're a smart guy. You've done endurance sports since middle school. Why Why do you feel like you need, and I'm saying this right in front of Matt, why do you feel That's like fun. you need a coach? Because, yeah, you've grown up doing this. You know your body. Is it just because it's, it's easier when you wake up in the morning and you don't have to come up with a workout? Or what do you feel like the biggest benefit for for you is? Well, so I think while you're right, I could definitely write my own training and, and probably keep improving you know, at some slow rate. Um, I'm... I'm actually in uncharted territory in terms of like what my goals are um, and you know what I want to accomplish. And that kind of means I need someone that has some experience, you know, trying to, you know, train someone, you know, think about what it takes to get to that level. I mean, I haven't studied at all, you know, what the best 
the, the pros are doing, you know, what they're doing. I, of course, I could take the time out of my busy life and, and do that and learn that. And maybe I could do a good job. Or I can talk to Matt, who's already thought about all those things and have give, you know, full control over to him. And, and then he can, you know, worry about those details and I can, you know, discuss them with him, learn, you know, through the process, maybe make changes with him if I really see them necessary. But so far, Matt's like done a phenomenal job with it. And we haven't really had to worry too much about these, like even minute details. What, uh, what, what weaknesses do you have that you feel like, do you feel like Matt really makes you work on your weaknesses? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think in terms of like triathlon, it's pretty obvious in somewhere between my swim and my bike are definitely like, you know, I guess it's more running's my strength. Um, the, we've been coming a long ways on both the swimming and the biking. Um, swimming has been less of a problem in the pro field. Although as we've kind of talked about in some of the previous episodes, it's really important to be getting out of the water with those front group, like that front group so that I'm still in the race. And so even though I'm not losing too much time there necessarily, that's like some of the most valuable time. And this, this will be really fun because I've not had this conversation with Sean yet, but in this year, like again, me being my own worst enemy in terms of making more money, um, I've like, I've thought about what next year I would instruct Sean to do based upon his results because he's going to get to a point where he outgrows me. I mean, that's just fact. I all, whenever I talk to a young pro, I always tell them, do not be someone's experiment. Do not just don't do that. You're it's too valuable. Go to somebody who's done it with someone like you. Like I'm all for new people getting into it, but don't be someone's experiment. And eventually Sean is going to be in territory where he's my experiment and as important as it is for me to get experience, it would be more, it's more important for me to have Sean get results. So, I mean, that's already something I'm thinking about, depending on how well he progresses and what type of environment he needs to be in, because there's only so much that um, I can tap into without him being around somebody who's top 10 at Kona regularly. So this is actually something that kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier about having trust in your coach. And although I've never actually talked to Matt about this exact thing, this is something I kind of always got that impression that if I asked Matt, like, hey, do I need to go find, you know, some high level coach or what, what do I do next? I would Matt would be very honest with me. And, you know, I think that's something, you know, like Matt said, we'll have to think about as as I progress. Yeah, you um, just like you're asking, I'm asking athletes not to have an ego. A coach's ego is just as bad, right? Because you got to know where your limitations are as an athlete and as a coach. And I have no business coaching somebody who is trying to podium at Kona. Like I just, I just don't not yet. Maybe by the time I'm 40 or 50, I will, but I don't right now. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that on if somebody offered it to me. So what kind of experience are you lacking? Like, and I guess the real question there is what's the difference between a low level coach who's able to coach a new pro and a high level coach who's able to coach someone who's near the top of the field at Kona. That's like me asking you, so Steve, what don't you know? Tell me all the things that you don't know about life. Um, I don't know, but I know that there are maybe five people in the world who have success across the board with high-level athletes. And why, again, why why would I experiment on Sean when this is as important to him as it is? Why not send him to somebody who is clearly doing a good job regularly with people, again, similar to Sean or similar to Sean's talent level because everybody has a different 
amount of talent. Um, so again, I can't like, I can't define it because I don't, I don't know that, but I also know I don't, I think one of the good things I've done with Sean is keep him under his limits. So we can just have our three years together can be all be moving forward as opposed to the self-coached athlete or the new coach who gets somebody as talented as Sean is like, all right, let's ramp this shit up. And then they're just injured. Yeah, Sean's, what was your biggest swim? It was like a week ago. Yeah, 6K. 6K. So he is ever so close to the front pack of swimming. And he just did his biggest 6K swim. And there are just tons of guys putting in 10K in the pool regularly for no reason. Like, it's not helping them except injure their shoulders. So then how does you as a coach know when you are at your knowledge limit? Um, We're getting closer. <laughs> I just running out of progression. So, and we've talked about this, like in the swim, I definitely feel like he can progress more and more, but then there's always a balance of the three sports and also the volume aspect, because I know we can push the volume and risk breaking him. Um, but at some point he need, we are going to up the volume. Like he just has to steady. What well, we, and we did originally, right? Yeah. So um, for our listeners, um, I was probably doing less than 12 hours for most of my triathlon career. Um, you know, maybe a year ago, yeah. we upped that to, you know, mid-teens. And now we hover low teens, sometimes break into the 20s. But, um, yeah, you, I mean, you're right. Some of the best pros are doing upwards 30-plus. And for no other reason than lots of times a change and a fresh start just re-energizes people. And that's fine. Um, I've coached people for five years and there's really nothing going wrong. It's just like, I want to try something different. And I understand that. Or in Sean's case, a different, you know, a different group, a group training environment. Like he's going to get sick of me and Waltman eventually. And it's not going to be like as exciting. So anything placebo effect, right? Like anything that gets you motivated and gets you out the door. Well, first of all, Matt, I think you sell yourself short a little bit on you couldn't coach these top 10, you know, Kona people. I could help them in aspects. I know I could, but... Right. I'm just saying, I don't think there's any secret workout these coaches no. are giving them. These these guys are really talented. You know, they're increasing the volume, you know, 5-10% every year, and they're trying to keep things fresh. But I'm just saying, they're not giving them any secret workouts. You no. know, those guys are just uber talented, and they're, you know, they're a, they're the people that when you do throw the dozen eggs against the wall, they're the ones that aren't breaking. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the key things is kind of knowing what people are capable at that level. If you haven't worked with that many athletes at that level, you might not have a very good sense of like what those athletes breaking points are. I've given Sean a handful of workouts in the last two years where I've been nervous for like the three days before the workout to see how that went. And that's, I'm sure that still happens at higher levels because i just i I don't want to break him but you did a track workout that was like 20 or 18 miles like no i mean the oh the total day the The total total day day was like 18 miles and um yeah there's like two to three days before that where i'm like he needs to do this at some point like we need to get up to this type of stuff but then it's like how quickly do we progress back to that? Because we've not progressed back. No, we haven't. And, and, yeah. and my best runs, though, were shortly after yeah, they when were. we had progressed to that. So, um, I mean, that that's something that, I mean, I think it, it Part helped. of that is because Sean keeps crashing on his bike, but we're just going to leave that. Out. <laughs> I've crashed once. <laughs> <since then. laughs> 
No, but I think you make a good point about just probably every coach has their their general philosophy. I think you're probably, I assume, pretty well-rounded, you know, nothing too extreme. Some coaches are going to be all about the strength training. Some are going to be all about the volume, um, things like that. So I do think a block, you know, of three to five years with one coach, in my opinion, makes sense. And then kind of switching to something different um, to based on your weaknesses, if it's like a really heavy swim coach or, you know, maybe bike coach. Um, so that makes sense. But but I'm just saying, yeah, those coaches aren't giving them anything. There's no secret workout unless they're giving them EPO or something. Yeah, no, Chris makes a good point. Um, the talented individuals are going to rise, period. Uh, this is no, this isn't any different than basketball. If you're seven feet tall, 50% of all the people on earth who are seven feet tall have played in the NBA in some form. If you have a huge power engine, which is very easy to pick up on at a young age, just put them on a bike, give them a VO2 test without them having cycle trained. And you pretty much know, like, this kid can be a freak. It's the same thing in triathlon. Like, the best guys have the genetic gift. The really nice thing about triathlon, though, is it's not matured as a sport. So we have a lot of people who can do really well without those, like, super high-caliber genetic gifts. Event, like in ITU, that's changing. I mean, to win in, to be at the front of an ITU race, you have to run a 13 minute 5K at this point. So that's changing and it will change at long course. But right now. Yeah, I mean, one of the things uh, I'd be curious, curious to hear Chris's thoughts on how the sports evolved since, you know, retired, what, five, six, no, seven years ago now. And, God, and you're old. <laughs> <laughs> what, what you think, uh, think of the sport now? Maybe tell us a little bit about your experience in triathlon. I don't think we've heard yet much about it. Well, I, I was telling Sean when, I don't know what race it was, Santa Cruz, you did like a, it was like a legit half Ironman and you did a 352. 358. 358, sub four. Augusta, Augusta, I went like 351. Oh, that's right. He went, yeah. And you're still getting like sixth, seventh, eighth place or higher. And I mean, I remember when I was like first starting in the sport, you know, and this is all on memory from 10 years ago. But if you went sub four, you were winning the race like outright, no, and definitely. the prize purses probably weren't crazy. Actually, but, they were the same. They have yeah. not gone up. <laughs> it's just crazy how the how much the sports improved. I mean, five minutes in a seventy point three is is a different level. So, I mean, at least when I did, I'm so thankful I did it back when when I did. A, I was like twenty three, twenty four in the eighteen to twenty four age group when I was competing in that, and. Um, you know, I kind of snuck in probably the last time when it was, when it was a little bit easier to compete as a pro. And can you tell us about some of your best races for listeners? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I know Matt was mentioning Lionel, I think before we started, but I pretty much, I think I did like one or two 70.3s just kind of in the summers of like even collegiate, um, racing, but pretty much my first legit race was Ironman Wisconsin. And how'd that go? Um, yeah, it was great. I mean, I'm in the age group field. I know Matt talked on the last episode, all my races, even in the pro field were a complete time trial in the middle of nowhere. There was no surging going on. There was no anything. Chris also didn't know how to swim. Right. Yeah. So, so I was in just no man's land. This is as an age grouper. This is your first Ironman ever also as an age grouper. Right. And I mean, and so there's people around you and everything, but Sean, I think we have similar, how good we are at the swim, bike and run you're a lot better swimmer now but yeah i would swim and i i think at ironman wisconsin i'm probably coming out in 200th place and then bike and getting off the bike in 100th place and then and then i'm able i ran up to 11th place do you remember what your run split was uh, i think it was like 257 or something like that on a, a hilly course too right 
Uh, yeah, it's tough to. I don't remember it too much. I know it went through uh, Camp Randall Stadium. No, you did. You've done four Ironmans, and three of the four were like insanely hard courses, insanely slow courses. Yeah, yeah. So, but it was also one thing <clears throat> that discouraged me from Ironman is. especially in the pro field it's just you're in the middle i was in the middle of nowhere because i couldn't i mean andy potts like i think beat me by like 15 minutes on the swim (laughs) at lake placid or something so (laughs) these are i mean the age groupers were like catching me 10 minutes back so it got a little it got a little lonely out there when i did it and one reason i was able to have i feel like decent results is because i would do it like a time trial so these other pros that were legitimately better than me they were burning all their matches on on the bike and then you know only a you know, ten percent of them are going to have a good run for them. The rest are going to run these like three forty-five marathons if they're even finishing. So just uh, and a lot of them would drop out. So just based on that, even at like Ironman Arizona and stuff, I I may have been coming off the bike like fortieth pro and I don't know what I got, but maybe twentieth or something like mm-hmm. that. But it's because the other twenty are dropping out. So I mean, yeah, that was kind of my experience with the the pro racing. But it's gotten so much. I mean, just every year, like Matt saying, it's getting more and more legit. So I kind of snuck in at the right before it got too uh, too crazy. Did you uh, to try to do that to another sport? Maybe uh, ultra running. I, I as far as just competing. Yeah, because that was what you transitioned to after triathlon, right? Yeah, and and I would say it's mainly it was mainly a time thing. I mean, even in when I did triathlon training, I mean, I I still would just pretty much run on the trails, and like I said, I never did any interval workouts. A lot of my runs would be like seven eight minute pace, but maybe just on trails. Um, but was, yeah, it, was that transition to ultra running natural easy? I would say so. And I, and I follow some triathletes on, on Facebook and Instagram that are now doing trail running. I'm a little surprised they're not better at it. I mean, I thought, you know, maybe my caliber in triathlon, which let's just say it's like top 5% of the field. I thought it was pretty similar to trail running about top 5% of the field. But I mean, I will I be mean, anybody lot- who's making money at triathlon isn't switching over. The best guys haven't, or they won't ever, probably. Of course not. Yeah, and that's different. That's a different yeah. level. I guess I'm talking like elite age group. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm a little surprised that some pretty good triathletes that are going to Kona and stuff, like in a 50k trail race, they're not running it that fast. You'd think it would kind of correlate a little bit better, but I guess they're just so well rounded in the swim bike run. Um, where at least for me, I mean, running yeah. was by far my strength, so I guess it correlated probably a little bit better. Yeah, I think this is definitely something we could talk about in more episodes because here in Santa Barbara, we've had a, a number of athletes transition from triathlon to ultra running. So I'd be curious to have some of their them on the show and, and talk more about that because it does seem like a, a, a natural progression. Yeah, the duration and the nutrition and all that stuff's the same. You think it's an up progression or a down progression? Because I would say it's almost down progression. Triathlon takes more time, commitment, money. Yeah, exactly. So then if, if you're if you're looking to move away from triathlon, it's a, another sport to go try something new. And what's fun about starting a new sport is like the first few months, even your first few years, you're progressing pretty rapidly. And so it can make it a really enjoyable transition. Yeah, no, that was the best thing about going from college running to triathlon. Now I already did the ultra running thing, so I need to find a I need to find another <laughs> sport. I need to find another sport so I can uh, start setting those PRs again. I always was waiting for you to do CrossFit, but uh, you never really got into the that too much. Yeah, maybe that'll be my uh, next one. So Matt, you started with a run background, right? And then you ended up transitioning into triathlon. Yeah, run bike background. Um, oh, run. Actually, I loved road biking. Um, funny story. 
So I mountain biked as a kid and I really wanted a road bike because like I loved the, watching the tour and Greg LeMond was my hero and stuff. And uh, my mom wouldn't let me have one, even if I bought it. And then uh, I got cancer and when I was 16. So I asked for one like immediately and I got it. <laughs> so then I had a road bike for the rest of high school and I rode the shit out of that thing until I went to college where um, at Baylor, ultimately I ended up starting the triathlon club sophomore my junior year um late sophomore year didn't really get started but anyway with a friend of mine alexa ferris hopefully she listens to this um still one of my best friends and so we started up the triathlon club and i was kind of the de facto coach i guess not really but also kind of like we had a guy who was a really good swimmer who would like take us to the pool and give us swim workouts because i didn't know how to swim like i couldn't get across the pool my first Olympic distance in April of like 2009, I swam a 52 minute 1500, a 52 minute. You will not meet anybody who has swam that slow. Like that might be, that's well beyond the cutoff that they were allowing, but they felt so bad for me. They let me get off the bike. I don't know I mean, if I could actually swim that slow. Like it would be difficult for me to oh, swim I just that floated, slow. man. It was in the ocean too. So oh my that God. was like, I was scared. I didn't have a wetsuit. It was pretty chilly. I was scared. I remember we were starting and everyone's treading water and I'm like holding onto the dock and my buddy's like, are you okay? Can you tread? And then they started and he just swam away from me. And I was like, well, here I go. I had my own personal kayaker the whole day. So after I just got really into it and I liked it a lot. I did all sprints, Olympics, a couple of halves. I went to half Ironman worlds a couple times. And all this was before you had a coach? No. So I had... My, I had um, a guy in, I got reasonably good, uh, good for Waco, right? Like city of 100,000 people and I was the best triathlete. Um, a guy there got me a coach through the Olympic Training Center who was a long distance coach um, and he would like write me workouts. So yeah, I had a coach um, and then I just got a little burned out right after college, took some time off, didn't have a coach. Um, still like trained a lot, did a lot of volume, but just did unstructured stuff. And then I was 23, maybe 24. I was living on the East coast. I was just really not happy, really bored. Um, and in the span of like two weeks, I found a coach at the Olympic training center in Colorado Springs and, you know, gave up my lease and drove out to Colorado Springs to become part of this little training group in Colorado Springs. What uh what kind of pushed you to make that decision? What were the factors that made that the right decision? Um, probably wasn't the right decision. Uh, I've I've always been super adventurous and like and overcommittal. Um, just like I don't I mean it's different for everybody, but like when I was in high school, I was just the whole time I was in high school, I was in a small town, and I was like, I'm not going to live the rest of my life in this town like there's just no way so i was all i was the the wild child or the black sheep of the high school and of my family but but so, do you really think you'd be where you are today if, if you went to taking that risk and put yourself no, out it there? was definitely my theory was i'll move to colorado because i think they really like triathlon and cycling there and then i'll be able to get a job in the industry had no idea but I was just like, this seems like a good deal. So I took like my $2,000 I had saved and just drove out there and got a really cheap place to live. Um, ultimately, it worked out. It was a huge risk because I did 
Carmichael Training Systems, who I'd never heard of, happened to be there, and I asked for a job. I got a job. I started coaching. <clears throat> um, was in a training group, which was good because the coach, super nice guy, like nicest, very nice Christian guy, um, just didn't, like one of the things I was talking about before, just could not understand me. Like we could not have been more different personality types um so i just wound up with multiple stress fracture like i was just injured just overtrained yeah radically overtrained um so eventually long st- i just meandered all over the west like i can't even piecing it together and like the time frame but i was doing triathlon pretty well like i was getting better and i was reasonably fast um not as fast as sean is now but like low four hour half iron man guy um and I was like, I have a job that can move. I'm just going to live in this list of places and see which one I like best. And I started like moving around the West in my little truck and uh, getting places to stay on Craigslist. And then came out to Santa Barbara with a friend of mine who I met in Colorado and just really, really loved it. And ultimately like worked out a way to live here. So what do you think the, the biggest mistake that you made as you got into triathlon was? Um, from the triathlon standpoint, it is very, so I was dating a girl on the East coast who we'd been together for like two years. Um, it was just a lot harder to leave, to go join a training group than I had expected emotionally. Um, even though I left to go away to college, I had, I mean, I was reasonably prepared for that, but I was just really lonely. And that's something that a lot of cyclists, elite cyclists and professional triathletes deal with is you go out and you're training all the time. Your friends are also training all the time. They're competitors and you're traveling to races. Like I travel to my races alone for the most part. And it just gets really, really lonely. Um, So, So if someone was looking to make that jump from age group to pro, what would be your suggestion on how to do that the best or, or, you know, is is putting themselves in one of these training groups, these elite training groups, is that is that the way to go or is there a better way? It is likely not the way to go. If you are that good, the training groups will find you. Um, that's number one. Like you have to accept. We talked about the talent level. If you are that good, the elite groups will find you. You don't need to go begging for these elite groups. Um, if you're more on the level where I was or where Sean was a year ago, you really got to play the long game and you got to recognize like, Again, if you're really good, you're going to be awesome in your first race out. Like, that's just bottom line. Like, you can make a ton of mistakes and still be really freaking good the first time. Otherwise, you're not going to make money at triathlon. You're not going to go from a 430 guy to a 350 guy in a year. Like, that's just not going to happen. And you have to play the long game and recognize, like I was talking about, if you overcommit, you're going to be really lonely and you're going to be really poor. And those things are hard to deal with long term. And It's going to take you three, four years to advance to a professional level. So I tell kids, like, get a real job or at least a job that pays pretty well. Get a good coach, even if it's a long-distance coach, for at least, like, the first year. Make some money so you can save money and have money to go race with. Or have, like, a nest egg if you want to take a year off or a year or two off to train. So you can do that without having to really stress about you know, all of the excess, um, all the stuff that isn't triathlon. You can just worry about triathlon. Uh, get a real job, make money, train part-time. Because again, you can, if you train 
specifically, you can be really good off of 12 to 15 hours a week. And if you have talent, you're going to be really good off of that. You don't have to go move to Colorado and train 30 hours a week and be super poor and lonely. Are there any other mistakes that you see uh, you know, new pros or top age groupers making that um, you know, really take, take away from their, their chances at success? I think they just expect it too quickly. Again, you got to play the long game. Like, if you want to be, you're going to peak out in your mid 30s and you're 24 years old wanting to be a pro triathlete. Like, it's not going to happen overnight. If it was going to happen overnight at 24, like I said, pretty much everyone around you would already know it was going to happen, you know, because the talent will shine through and you'll be making money at 24. Um, so, again, just like, you got to be patient. It has to be sustainable. It needs to be fun. If you don't like it, you're not going to last. And that that's ultimately it. Like, you have to want that professional lifestyle. And as we were talking about earlier, it really comes down to knowing yourself. You know, what kind of coaching do you need? Are you able to do it all on your own? Or do you really need a, a coach of a particular personality in order to have that success? Yeah, an interview, you know, if you're looking for a coach, just interview a ton of them. Like, there's no harm in talking. There. You've been uncoached for however long. Like, so what? You take six months to pick a coach. Like, six months is not that big a deal in the long term. Again, like, you just have to be patient and work through it and commit to a long-term view. I'm sure a lot of these athletes, though, feel like, you know, each month that's slipping by is, is so much valuable time. How do you, what, how, what do you say to them to try to, like, calm them down to, to keep that long, long-term vision? <laughs> calm down okay, calm. accept the vision <laughs> yeah i'm um, the same stuff i was telling you guys like this is the reality and i'm sure there phil gaiman talks he has a great book where he talks about the struggling pro cyclist lifestyle um and basically why he ultimately retired because he making money at lower levels you know making like 50k a year but being so lonely and just like burned out on it and stressing about the finances just wasn't worth it. And his journey to that point, it's not its not holistically healthy. What, at like what level do you think someone could actually live off of, you know, being just a, a, a pro triathlete, say? Like, um, do you think they have to be like top three at all these 70.3s or? I mean, do the math on the money you need, right? Like I'm a very low maintenance guy. Uh, I, I would be super happy living in like Tucson, Arizona with a 400 dollar a month rent and not making not needing to make a lot of money to have like to live the way i wanted but i mean if you're going to these races and you're taking seventh place yeah or you know even fifth place you're bringing home a thousand dollars which doesn't even hardly cover yeah. your cost so you're gonna have a part-time job that's for sure and ha matt and sean have you guys talked about sean's like three or five year plan at all i mean uh, when we first started out after he did um after your first conference race with me, I think just the first time when I was like, look, bro, this is like the story of like, you have to have a sustainable, healthy, enjoy doing it because I went full commit and it's, again, it's lonely, it's sad, you're poor, you're worried about money and long-term money, right? Because at some point you need to have like a real career. So um, there's no reason to like go overboard and the reality is it likely won't work out. But that shouldn't be the end like just because it doesn't work out and you are making 100k a year doesn't mean don't do it mm -hmm. because you should be doing it because you want to do it yeah i mean it's all about enjoying the process so yeah. i mean that's definitely something that 
you know, I've really tried to construct my life and my my training environment so that it, like the whole process is really enjoyable. You know, I definitely have to make some sacrifices when it comes to maybe racing a little bit more than I might naturally do. Um, you know, of course, you you have to put that time in. So you do have to like, you know, say if you're doing a little travel, you might be training a little bit more than you'd want for that while you're traveling. But, you know, me and Matt are actually pretty good about whenever I have, you know, these times that I am traveling or doing things to make sure that like the training is appropriate for it. So it, it, it's very sustainable, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to, there's a really good blog. Cody Beals has a very open blog on his finances as a professional triathlete from year to year. And it's super eye-opening. He lived with his parents for like the first two years. And he's a well-known in triathlon. He won Montremblant. He beat Lionel Sanders this year at Ironman Montremblant. He lives with his parents. <clears throat> I mean, to save money. Uh, he lives in Canada with his family instead of living in San Diego and training outside because the rent isn't, it's not realistic for him to make that rent. And you have to like know that going in. I have a friend who got, she went to Baylor. She started a GoFundMe for her professional triathlon career and got destroyed online. Just, she's a very sweet girl. And it was essentially just for her family, but some guy on slow Twitch, I mean, he, she got destroyed, but then... And, like, I'll defend her, but then she did 70.3 Worlds in Africa, and her mom came, and that trip probably cost ten or $15,000 for both of them, and she had no chance of making money off of that. I mean, she swims, like, a 30. Like, that's, like, 101. Like, you're trying to do this as a pro. It may be cool to go to Worlds and get 17th because all the other girls were smart enough not to go because they can't make money on it. And like, you're not going to, you got to realize you're not going to get sponsorships out of that. Like they don't give sponsorships are super, super hard to come by. Jesse Thomas, after he won wildflower was very open on, he won wildflower thought he was going to get a sponsor. It was a year from that point on before he had any type of tangible sponsorship that was like giving him stuff. Yeah, it's always a hard question when, when people hear I'm a, a pro triathlete, that's the first thing. Oh, so you make money or who are your sponsors? And it's, it's a hard thing to be in like my position and be like, well, Coach Matt Powered, yeah. title sponsor. <laughs> Big Johnny Wattsman. <laughs> yeah. Um, but stuff like that, like you just got to be realistic and it's not going to happen overnight. And yeah, you may, you may be able to get to a point where you can go to these big races and gram about it and actually make money off of it. But your goal should be to make this sustainable. Wait, did you just use Instagram as a verb? Grammable. Yeah. All right. Well, this is a really rich topic and we really covered a lot today, but unfortunately we're, we're out of time. So we will get back to you guys later and we will talk more about this in the future, I'm sure. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.